Praise be to Christ. <clears throat> Thank you, Dave. Um, all right, so we are going to start something new. And it's not just going to be, maybe it'll be right here at this point in the service, but it might be at the beginning of the service. And I would love for this to become shorthand. So let's, let's take a look here. I'm going to say peace with you, peace be with you, and I'm inviting you to respond and also with you. You want to practice? Peace be with you. Yeah, and so I, I mean, we're going to have it on the screen at the beginning of the sermon, and I'm going to say, peace be with you. Yeah, um, and then when, sometimes when it's not on the screen, if I say, peace be with you. Yeah, there we go. Man, you guys are quick students. Okay, um, so we're just going to, yeah, I, I, I think that that would just be good for us, man. It's like Jesus said, peace I bring to you, and it's like, it, it's the good news of the gospel, like peace with God. And so um, the people of God have been saying something like that in gathered worship for a really long time. It's, it's not unfamiliar language, um, but we just haven't made it part of our, uh, part of our jam here. And so uh, going forward, want to uh, lean into that a little bit more. And so uh, celebrating the peace that, that, God, uh, that God offers to us. So we're in a new series uh, called uh, Finding Faith, and today is, is week one. And um, it's, a, it's a real short series, a little four-week four week series. Um, and, and here's how we're going to get into it. Um, one of the reasons why I like preaching through books of the Bible, and one of the reasons why I like preaching through big books of the Bible, is because you only have to do introduction one time, and then you are, the plane's in the air, and you can just teach, you can just teach the texts. And uh, every Sunday, it's like, well, what's next? Well, what, what's the next verse? Like, that's what's next. Um, but when you do a mini-series, um, not only do you, you know, have to kind of figure out what you're doing with the mini-series, but then you got you to get the plane in the air. You got to kind of do that introduction uh, sermon. Um, but we're cheating a little bit because what, what, what we're uh, going to do is we're going to, in a sense, piggyback uh, off of where we were at in the book of Matthew. So if you've been around, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we just were in chapter 4. And what we saw in chapter 4 was Jesus calling two sets of brothers. And he looked at those brothers, and he said to them, follow me. And both sets of brothers, John and James, Peter and Andrew, they follow Jesus. So as we start this four-week series, um, and kind of maybe uh, zoning in or uh, zooming in on this idea of, of finding faith, um, I want to just recognize that that's where we were before Easter, and in, in a sense, it's like a, it's a, just a little uh, exit ramp, and we're just going to pause at a rest area and look at this subject of what it is uh, that Jesus was doing with, with uh, those, those four, uh, four brothers. But we're going to look at it from a different gospel, from John's gospel, uh, as, as, as a kind of an introduction to this series. And as you heard, the end of John chapter 1 being read, you see um, that, that in verses 35 through 42, we see Andrew and Peter become followers of Jesus. John, in his gospel, does not record the, the brothers John and James. One of the reasons is, is because it's, it's, it's the, the author of the gospel of John is that John. So he doesn't tell the story of him and his brother coming to uh, become followers of Jesus. But he gives us Andrew and Peter. He doesn't give us John and James, but then he does give us another pair of disciples that Jesus calls to himself. And those two are named Philip and Nathaniel. And as we get into this series, you know, I, I just I want to put it on the table that, that faith is a decision to begin a journey. 
uh, an, an adventure of sorts. And so as we consider these subjects, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking today uh, uh, maybe a little bit more at faith, although it's just generally an introduction to the series. And then we're going to be looking at, at doubt and at certainty and at the gospel. And in some ways, we're looking at all four of those things every week. Um, but each week, we'll have a little bit more of a, of a focal point that we're going to try to lean uh, lean into. And so if you are here and you got legitimate questions about whether or not Jesus is who he says he is or whether or not the Bible is true, you know, my prayer has been and is that this series is, is a great series for you. Uh, I also am going to try to, to preach these four sermons in a way where they're not terribly dependent upon the previous sermon. And so if you have people in your life, if you're here and you're like, man, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, I have a million questions too, but I put my faith in, in Christ, but my, my coworker has a lot of questions or my neighbor has a lot of questions, uh, my encouragement would be that every Sunday we're trying to hold up the good news about Jesus and, and consider it together. And so I would uh, certainly suggest that coming and considering the words of, of Jesus on the pages of Matthew's gospel is a good idea too, but these weeks are going to be intentionally wrestling with this journey towards Jesus, uh, this, this, this sense of how, how is it that we find faith uh, in, in Jesus. So let, let's take a look at these verses in, in John chapter 1. Uh, I was telling Mason that my favorite chapter in the entire Bible is Romans chapter 8, and I'm pretty sure John chapter 1 is my second favorite. I, I, I love the content of these uh, 40-some verses. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's just so much to, uh, to consider. So we'll start off, finding faith in Jesus is investigative. It's an investigation, man. It, it, it's really interesting to compare the beginning of John chapter 1 with the end of John chapter 1. If you were to just gaze back, if you have your Bible open there, just turn, maybe it's a page for you, but turn back to the beginning of the chapter and you see the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I mean, John starts off at the most macro level you can start off at, in the beginning. He, he reaches all the way back into eternity and he talks at the biggest, most grand level there is. In the beginning was the word, and it's this grand, beautiful statement about how things were in the beginning. If you follow those 18 verses, what you find out is what John wants to do is say that here's the deal. This word revealed itself to the world. This word was spoken to the world. And kind of the point of those first 18 verses, while there's so much to consider there, it's revelation. It's that, that God has revealed himself to the whole world. It's using language like light, that, that God, his light shone onto the earth or the, the light that enlightens everyone. And so there's this, this, this idea that John wants us to, to face right off the bat in his gospel account. You know, remember Matthew's gospel account, that starts with a genealogy, specific people, a family tree. That's very earthly, and it's very historical in, in an earthly kind of way. This is like cosmic. John goes to the, in the beginning was the word. And he wants us to see that this word didn't stay quiet. This word spoke. This word revealed. This word told the world uh, something. And then by the end of the chapter, what is Jesus saying? Come and see. And so you go from this, this cosmic grand idea of revealing to the whole world to by the end of the chapter, we got a literal, physical human being who is talking to people and saying, come and see. 
And so it's like John brings it from this grand, grand reality down to a very practical, real, dirt of the earth, boots on the ground uh, reality. Jesus says, you know, come, come and see. Well, come and see what? I mean, he, he means come and see me. Come and see him. Come and see the Messiah, how he lives, what he does, what he teaches. And so Jesus' invitation to those, who, to those who he runs into is come, come and examine. Come and consider me. Come and challenge me. Come and question me. Come, come and, and, and take a look. You know, if you read through all the Gospels, what you find is that Jesus loved questions. He loved getting questions and he loved giving questions. Jesus asks a lot of questions over the course of his life and he answers a lot of questions over the course of his life. So he loved questions, he invites questions, he expects questions. And part of the reason why Jesus expects questions and he expects, expects questions from you is because he is revolutionary. Because he, he, he totally changed the game. At the beginning of this chapter, John uses a word that had major value in the two biggest cultural influences of his original audience. So when John wrote this gospel and they, the first people that read it in the first century, the biggest cultural influences for his readers would have been the Jewish history and the Greek history. The, 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 those, those backgrounds or those worldviews, uh, those, those uh, ideas, those systems would have been the two primary systems at play in the minds of his believers and we, we, or of his readers. And we, we've talked about these ideas uh, here before, but John uses the word logos. Logos, it's the Greek word for word. So when he says in the beginning was the word, it's in the beginning was the logos. That, that's, that's the word that he uses. And you might be like, well, thanks for bringing up your Greek. I could care less about Greek. And I, I appreciate that. I kind of care less about Greek too. Um, but but in, in this sentence, there, there, is a, there is an article in the Greek. And so it is the logos, the word. It's kind of like Ohio State, you know, Ohio State University. They make a really big deal about this, the Ohio State University. That's actually because they went and did a lawsuit. That doesn't matter. They, they, they sued so that they were the Ohio State University. And, and in John's gospel, it's like the logos, the word. Well, what's going on there? Well, logos for the Greeks, man, read Plato. This is a really big deal for them. Logos in Greek has the same uh, root as logic. And for the Greeks, this, uh, there was this sense of logos, of logic, of meaning, of reason. And there was this, uh, there was this, this uh, it was impersonal, but it was this logic that held everything together. And so they had a space for the word, the logos, but it was an impersonal thing that just, it held everything together. It was the logic of the world, but it was impersonal. What about the Hebrews? What about the Jewish people? Well, for them, the Logos was literally the word of God. It was the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. It was their guide. And when you read through the Old Testament, you find out something. When God speaks, crazy stuff happens, like big stuff happens. And so if you're a Jewish person, you had, ten, you had, you had space for the Logos. It was the spoken word of God. It was the written word of God. It was the guide for their life. It was this holy experience, this, this uh, revolutionary experience that, that changed everything. 
So what's the problem? What, like, what, is, is this disruptive? John's using a word? Is he just trying to relate to them? Is he just, just trying to contextualize? In, in some ways, you could say that. But John's actually confronting both of those visions of the world. For John, the Logos is the Word of God in the flesh. It's a human being. It's Jesus Christ who is the God-man. And this becomes a problem for both parties. See, the Greeks could not, they could never accept that ultimate logic could be found in a lowly human. No way. A human being that needs to sleep and eat, that, 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 that's the ultimate logic, that's the ultimate reason, no way. What about the Hebrews? The Hebrews couldn't accept it because the Holy Word of God would never be contaminated with the earthly, with the tangible, with the physical world. A human being who smells, who needs to take a bath, who gets dirty, that, that would be a scandal for the Hebrews. It would be, for some, it would be blasphemous. So John is intentionally using an idea that was part of the philosophical debate, the logos, but he's using it in a way that is causing them a lot of headaches. Leslie Newbigin, who was a, a theologian who, who died uh, in, in the 1990s, he says that whether you held to a Greek view or to a Jewish view, or if you had some kind of a mashup with those two, you really only had two options when you read this. If you started reading John's gospel and you started reading chapter one, you, you have two options. This is what he says. What, one option is that you slam it shut at like verse two, and you say, no way, that's a scandal. There's no way that that's the ultimate logos. There's no way that that is the Logos, whether you're a Greek or a Jew. Both parties would, would legitimately come to that conclusion. Like, just slam it shut and say, no way. That is, that's a farce. He says, but the only other real option is to dare to read on and to listen to the whole story and realize that your whole way of thought is being torn down and must be rebuilt on a new foundation, a new beginning. You know, when John in John chapter 1 verse 1, what is he playing off of? The beginning of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis says, in the beginning was God. John steals those words and says, in the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Christ. And so he's changing the foundation of how you see the world, changing the foundation of, of how you build your ideas. And for both the Greeks who love philosophy and the Jewish people who love the word of God, both of them are being confronted with the right foundation for any of that stuff has to be Jesus. How do you understand the Hebrew Bible? Through, through Jesus. How do you understand the philosophy of the world? Starting point is Jesus. A new beginning, a brand new starting point. See, Leslie Newbigin's point is you either dismiss it or you wrestle with it because it's too fundamental to, and it's too disruptive to just play with it. You, you can't just play with it. You know, it's been domesticated for us. Do you see that? That we live in a culture where these ideas are so common and Christmas is mashed up with Santa Claus and the birth of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus is mashed up with an Easter bunny and jelly beans and it's all so domesticated, and we can piddle with it and play with it. But Leslie Newbegin is saying, no way. Those first readers, when they ran into this, they realized what this meant. It meant a new starting point. It meant a new foundation. It meant things have to change. And so you either dismiss it 
or you go to you you wrestle with it it's too disruptive it's too fundamental you can't play with it and check out nathaniel nathaniel you know philip comes and get nathaniel and what does nathaniel say he has an immediate objection philip's like hey we got him (laughs) you know that messiah the messiah that's all through the psalms and the prophets the one that we pray about all the time songs we sing at at the tabernacle at at the temple you know that's not yeah we found him we got him and uh nathaniel's like yeah where's he from and philip's like nazareth he's from nazareth and it's an immediate non-starter i mean nathaniel is immediately like nope that is not a possibility nathaniel's got an objection and it's a good one why does nathaniel immediately say no way because the old testament prophet said he wasn't coming from nazareth the old testament prophet said he would come from bethlehem and so Nathaniel's like, you might think that you have found him, but I have an internal objection to this. It's a non-starter. It's not going anywhere. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to having some objections to the message of Jesus, to the person of Jesus? Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, and you can remember back in your first days of coming to faith, and you remember the objections you had then. Maybe you're here today, and you're playing the game. You're you're acting like you're a follower of Jesus, but you actually do have really significant objections and you haven't fully trusted him. Or maybe you're here today and you're exploring all out. Like you haven't said you're a follower of Jesus. You're not sure. Can you relate to having objections to who this Jesus is? Do you have friends who have objections to the message of Jesus? Some people object to Christianity out of malice or out of really bad intentions that they exist, you can find them all over the place. But there are a lot of people who have genuine questions, really genuine questions, and really genuine concerns. And as we'll see in a minute, Nathaniel's one of them. Nathaniel's got really legitimate questions, really genuine questions. I have a book called Apologetics at the Cross, written by two friends. In one section of the book, they investigate what they call defeaters or defeater beliefs that exist right now in our current culture. And what, the reason they call them defeater beliefs is what they're saying is this, is when the message of Jesus is shared with people in our culture, there are a number of ideas that just are exactly like this is for Nathaniel. It's just the second that you talk about Christianity, the second that you talk about the Bible, the second that you talk about Jesus, it's an immediate, no way, not, it can't be that. That can't be the answer. There's no way that that's the logic of the world. There's no way that that's the hope of the world. There's no way that there's answers found in that old ancient book. And they, they walk through these defeater beliefs, and they have quite a few of them, but a few that, that, that maybe would uh, resonate with some of you, that Christianity is way too restrictive, uh, that Christianity is homophobic, uh, that Christianity is demeaning to women, that Christians are all hypocrites, that hasn't, you know, hasn't science disproved uh, the Bible and Christianity how do you explain all the suffering in the world? You know, the, the list is really long. And one of the reasons why the list is so long is because we live in a culture that is actually a post-Christian culture. It's, at least it's growing that way. And so the message of, of Christianity has already kind of went through, if you would think of it that way. It's gone through our culture. And now there's all kinds of, of, of arguments against it. In a pre-Christian culture, 
which is what the New Testament was, they had never heard these things before. They had never heard Jesus as the, the, the ultimate logic. They had never heard of, of Jesus as the meaning of life. They had never heard of, of hope with Christ or that Jesus is the only way to the Father. They'd never heard those things. We live in a culture where, it, it, even if it's been partial, almost everybody has heard some part of that. And it makes it a complicated environment. Defeater beliefs. Some of those concerns are really genuine. They are really heavy for people to carry. And sometimes it's just not, not just non-Christians, but it's Christians who carry those concerns. Well, Nathaniel, he's got a non-starter too. But look at what Philip does. Come and see. Nathaniel's like, it can never be him. Philip's like, come and see. And look at Nathaniel. Nathaniel does. Nathaniel is willing to investigate. You know, are you? Are you willing to investigate him? Because that might make all the difference in the world. Just, just being willing to consider the claims of Jesus. To consider who he is. Who he says he is. What he has done. Nathaniel took that step. And man, that same offer that was given to Nathaniel to come and see, is, it, it's given to you. Jesus says it. Come, come and see. Come, come and check it out. So there's an investigative piece to finding faith in Jesus. And we'll try to probe into that over the next couple weeks. Secondly, we'll move faster through these points, but finding faith in Jesus is personal. Again, if you were to compare the beginning of John's, uh, John chapter 1 with the end of John chapter 1, at the beginning, grand, big, reaching back into eternity, God's revealed, God, whatever. At the end, in verse, uh, verse 9, he says, the light which enlightens everyone, Okay, there's this, like, this general sense to it. By the end of the chapter, we've got names. We've got Andrew and Peter. We've got Philip and Nathaniel. At the beginning, it's everyone. By the end of the chapter, God is like, no, it's, it, it is for everyone, but like God cares about you. Like, what's your name? Yeah, God, God cares about you. God knows your name, and God cares about you. And you matter, and your story matters, and where your head is, and where your heart is. These things all matter to God. If you look at verses 44 and 45, there's just there's four like totally normal names: Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. The point is, yes, this light was shown to everyone, but it's shown on you. Specific to you, personal, individual names, individual souls. This gets really personal. See, Jesus is not just to be studied. I mean, he is to be investigated, but he's not just to be investigated. He's to be followed. That, that's this sense of being his apprentice, of being with him. The, the, the Bible in John loves this word abide. That means to just to be with him in, in, in proximity. In, in the Psalms, there's this Psalm that talks about being in the shadow of the Almighty. How in the world do you get in someone's shadow? You got to be close. You don't get in someone's shadow unless you're close. This, this journey with Jesus is a personal journey. It's not just for the generic whole world. It's for you. It's for individual people. And this is a problem. There are a lot of people who are impressed with the message of Jesus from afar. A lot of people who have a, a good opinion of Jesus as long as he doesn't start messing with them. 
as long as he doesn't start messing with their goals and their priorities. I can feel that. I can feel it when Jesus is stepping on my toes. I can feel it when Jesus is messing with my levels of comfort or with my desires. And there's a lot of people that experience that. It's like, I love the idea of Jesus, but boy, when it gets down in here, when he starts messing with my, my affections and my decisions and my priorities and how I use my time and how I use my money, it's like, whoa, 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 back up there. Back up there, Jesus. I use this illustration a lot, but there's a preacher who said that a lot of people invite Jesus into their life. If you think of your life as a house, it's like they invite Jesus into their life because they have a leak in the bathroom, in the bathroom faucet upstairs. They invite Jesus in, they turn around, and the next thing you know, he's torn out the entire thing. He's torn out the whole bathroom. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just wanted you to fix the leak in the faucet. And you've torn out the entire thing. This is the personal nature of Jesus' work in, in people. And uh, it's inevitably what he's going to do. His message is too fundamental. It's too fundamental not to mess with you. Exactly what we said about the Jews and the Greeks. When they realize what's being said by the Logos, it's going to so disrupt their worldview that you either have to reject it or wrestle with it. You can't play with it. And God cares about you and your life and your decisions. And it's too fundamental to just be played with. Maybe a way to think about this, Leslie Newbigin uh, says that there's two kinds of knowledge. And I, I could take a really long time on this, and I'll try not to. Uh, but he says there's, there's two kinds of knowledge. One, one kind of knowledge is the kind of knowledge where you, you have a subject. He says it's kind of in the category of the natural sciences, where you have this, this thing, and we come with the questions. We decide what questions to ask. We probe, and we prod, and we see what we find out. And that's kind of like one way of knowing. He said, but there's another way of knowing. And the other way of knowing is a relational knowing. And that's where, yeah, you, you can come with your questions, but the one that you're questioning actually talks back to you. They, they actually have something to say back. He says, think about it like this. What, what if you're talking about someone who's not in the room? You, you can talk about them in a way that kind of uh, can be almost like definitive or that's surely what's happening. But what happens when that person walks into the room? Doesn't that conversation change? All of a sudden, they can offer their own insight and their own feedback to why they did what they did, why they were thinking what they were thinking. This, this, this is the kind of relational knowing. And what, what uh, Leslie Newbigin says, that in that kind of knowing, we are not in full control. We can come with our questions, but watch out, because there's going to be some questions fired back. There's going to be some data coming back to you. Leslie Newbigin's point is that we can talk about God, but what if God's walked into the room? And the, and the message of John chapter 1 is that he has. That, it, that John tells us he took on a human body and came and dwelt among us. The first verses of the chapter is that he's revealed himself to the world. So yeah, we, we, we could try to treat God like the natural sciences and just bring our questions and try to be in control. But that's not the kind of knowing the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about a personal knowing, a relational knowing, where we can bring our questions, but we're not fully in control because the subject matter is actually talking back. The subject matter has its own set of questions that we should ask and answer. It's a disruptive kind of knowing. It's a personal kind of knowing. And so we, we, we have all of all that going on, but Jesus says, come and see. 
You got all your questions. Jesus' answer is, well, come, come over here. You know, do you notice that Jesus does not start off his conversation with these guys by saying, put your faith in me right now? Here's a prayer to, here's a prayer, to pray. His answer is, come, come and see. Like, come and take a look. Come, come and check this out. He invites them to be with him, to abide with him, even with all of their questions. Listen, if you take him up on that, you'll find that you will have some objections. Yep. Some will be conscious and some will be unconscious. Some you know you have right now. And then you have objections that you don't even know you have. And that's the beauty of being with Jesus. If you trace the disciples' life, they keep having them for three years in his presence. The questions keep bubbling up. They, 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 don't, they don't understand. They keep missing it. Well, welcome to following Jesus. This is the journey. It's a lifelong journey of figuring out what are the objections that are standing in the way? What are the things where I'm saying, no way, there's no way, if that is true, whatever that blank is, you know, for, for, for Nathaniel, it was, he's from Nazareth. Yours might be, it's, it's too restrictive. Yours might be, I can't explain the suffering I've gone through. Whatever those objections are, Jesus is not afraid of you bringing them. Jesus' response to Nathaniel is, I saw you. So Nathaniel's got his concerns. And what does Jesus say to Nathaniel? Man, he says, I saw you. Can you, can you believe that? In verse 47, you know, before Nathaniel says a thing, so Philip goes and gets Nathaniel and says, we found him. Nathaniel says, where's he from? Philip says, Nazareth. Nathaniel's like, no way. Philip's like, well, just come and check it out. Nathaniel takes him up on it. And before Nathaniel says a thing, Jesus is like, whoa, this is an Israelite indeed. One who has no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, what? How do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you. I saw you under the fig tree. The other day, before Philip said a word, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, now some scholars point out uh, that it was common for Jewish people, it was a Jewish practice to sit under the shade of a fig tree to meditate on, on the Hebrew scriptures. Is, is it possible that Nathaniel was sitting under the fig tree meditating on the scriptures and asking really genuine questions about this Messiah? Asking really legitimate questions. And he knew what questions he was asking, but nobody else knew what questions he was asking. Maybe he was doubting. Maybe he was really struggling that any of those have been true. It had been a long time. And when he runs into this Jesus... Jesus is like, I saw you. And it was revolutionary because Nathaniel immediately responds, I'm all in. <laughs> I, I am all in. Now look, we cannot be 100% sure of what was going on in Nathaniel's mind as he sat underneath that tree. But what we can know is that Jesus saw the real Nathaniel. He saw him crystal clear. And it might have been embarrassing but Jesus is like, I, I, I see you. I saw, I saw what was going on. Nathaniel realized that Jesus saw him like that and knew him like that. Man, he, he, he turned in faith. Jesus, the eternal word who was from the beginning, wants to get right down into your life like that too. He sees you like that. You're finding faith in Jesus is intensely personal. And lastly, 
It's relational. It's our final point. Finding faith in Jesus is relational. Do you, do you notice that Nathaniel, who has legit questions, does not find Jesus on his own? Whatever he was doing underneath that fig tree, let's say he was asking questions about the Messiah. He didn't find the Messiah on his own. Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. Do you, you see that Philip, he goes and gets Nathaniel. Nathaniel's got objections. And what does Philip say? I don't know, man. I don't know. But you want to do this? Let's go check it out. Come and see. Let, let, let's go see. Let's go check it out. I don't know the answer to that one. Good thought. I forgot about that passage in Micah. Shoot, it was supposed to be Bethlehem. Let's go ask. Let's go check it out. He's the real deal, I'm telling you. Let's go check it out. He'll have, he'll have an answer. He'll have something to share. And off they go. He just says, I don't know. Let's go see. It's a beautiful example that we are invited to replicate. Most people are brought to Jesus by a friend. Do you know that? Most people, are, they, they come to faith in Jesus through a friend. There are plenty of stories of God meeting with individual people. That happens. But if you were to trace the majority story, the common story, it is a friend who brings someone to Jesus. They're the one who says, come and see with me. Come and check it out. You know, sometimes we think, man, it's so hard to share the gospel in the year 2023. Well, one of the questions would be is, how often are you trying how often are you saying to your friend, you want to come and see? I, I don't know the answer to your question, but you want to go check it out? You want to read the Bible together? You want to come to church with me? You want to come to my community group? You, you want to investigate this? I'll, I'll check with you. I'm not sure the answer, but I'll look for it with you. I'll investigate it with you. Is all I know is I found hope there. Is all I know is he's, he's the answer. Let's go look. You know, Jesus found Andrew, and then Andrew went and found Peter. Jesus found Philip, and then Philip went and found Nathaniel. Found people, find people. And Jesus invites us into that mission. And look, I just want, I need to say this. We, we don't love people, in, you know, don't snuggle up to our neighbor just to try to share the gospel with them. You don't love people to share the gospel with them. You share the gospel with them because you love them. There's actually a genuine love that Jesus has for people. We just saw that in the second point. And so, of course, he's sharing the good news of hope of the gospel. You, you share good news with people you care about. And if you really believe this stuff, I think you're going to be shocked at how often it comes out, out of your mouth. You know, none, you're, none of you are surprised about what I'm about to say. Like five months ago, I started doing CrossFit. And I have said CrossFit more times in the last five months of my life than I can even count. I tell everybody about CrossFit. It's like the first rule of CrossFit is you have to talk about CrossFit. And I tell everybody about it. You know, but, you know man, Matt, you, you look like you've lost some weight. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing CrossFit. You know, Matt, you, you, can you do breakfast? No, I, I got CrossFit. And it's like, you want to come with me? You want to do it with me? It's, it, there's like this, this oozing out about the, the good news about, about CrossFit. I believe it's making a difference. It's, it's impacting, it's impacting my, my physical life for sure. Well, look, if, if, what if it's impact, What if Jesus Christ is literally impacting your life? See, if he's not, then why are any of us surprised that we're, that we're not talking about Jesus with our neighbor or our coworker? But if he is, it's like it feels like, you know, I have to, I have to, I have to hit the brakes on, on CrossFit talk. It's like I think people get tired of that. I, I, I imagine they do. And it's like, wouldn't it be beautiful if you're like, gosh, I got to manage my Jesus talk here. I got to figure out how not to be too over the top to where they, you know, I'm turning them off. 
You know, the apostles are incredible. The great awakenings are incredible. Billy Graham was incredible. But how about just one? How about not stadiums full? How about your neighbor? How about your coworker? What if you just prayed for one? You know, or first, are you praying that God opens your heart to investigate Jesus deeper? But if you're a follower of Jesus, are you praying that God would cause you to cross paths with someone who is ready to investigate but needs a partner for the journey. I mean, God may have set you up already for that. My bet is that he has. And the invitation is wide open. It's not very effective to throw gospel grenades and then run away, right? (laughs) To be like, hey, let me tell you about my faith and then be gone. It's like, we wanna be in relationship with people and see if there's just maybe the possibility where we can say, let's go look together. Finding faith in Jesus is often a group project. You and a friend, you, your friend in your CG, you, your friend in your church, lots of opportunities. So a lot of people, man, a lot of people found Jesus. Andrew and Peter, John and James, Philip and Nathaniel, six more disciples, millions of others, some of us in this room. To follow Jesus is is to decide to begin a journey, an adventure of sorts. And Jesus knows that. Look at what he says to Nathaniel. He's like, just, just the fig tree? Just the fact that I saw you under the fig tree? Like, that got you? You, you have no idea what's coming. You have no idea what's coming. We're going to rip heaven open. It's, it's, we're going to tear it open. And the world's going to change. And like, my followers are going to be the impetus. Like, you're, you're, you're going to go all over the world. And Jesus, at the end of his life, is standing in Jerusalem. He says, I want you to take this gospel everywhere. And you know where we are? We're in Traverse City, Michigan. And the gospel got all the way here to our ears. For some of us, it's pierced our heart. It's here, but it's not with every single person. It's not with every one of our neighbors. It's not with every one of our coworkers. But that's Jesus' invitation to us. That's the mission that he's invited us into. So we're going to go to the table. And we're going to recognize that if you've run to Christ, if you've trusted Christ, if you've done what Nathaniel did, if you've done what Philip did, and you ran to him and said, you're it, man. <laughs> you, you, you are the one hope of the world. Where else is there to go? I give my life to you. I, I, I pledge my life to you. Then this meal makes all the sense in the world. This bread is his, represents his body broken for you. The juice represents his blood spilled for you. And we invite you to come to the table. If you're not a Christian, man, we encourage you to stay where you're at and receive Christ. So to recognize that this invitation to come and see, to come be with him, like that invitation is wide open to you right now. If our service will please, please come, let's pray. God, I thank you for this, this, uh, this text, John chapter 1, the glory and the grandness of, of these verses, going from the cosmic down to the very, very personal, going from the general revelation all the way down to an individual heart coming to faith. God, it is a miracle that any of us are Christians. It's a miracle that anyone is a Christian. And we love the miracle that we're seeing here at the end of John chapter 1. And we want to see that miracle replicated all over the place in life after life after life. So God, would you soften our hearts? Would you warm up our hearts? Would you give us a passion to see the people around us come to faith? God, it, it doesn't happen on accident and it doesn't happen with our mouths shut. God, we, we, we need to be the spokesman 
found people find people. God, would you motivate us and encourage us? And God, if there's anyone here who has not yet seen who Jesus is and recognized the hope that he offers, I pray that today uh, would, would be that day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you just would on the screen, uh, repeat the underlined portion. As we come to the Lord's table, we lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord.